If you have your Bibles today, go ahead and open up to John chapter 12. And if you did not bring your Bible but would like to use one with us, just raise your hand and we'll be glad to bring you one. We have several there in the back. Uh, of course, kind of as usual, we'll be flipping around through the Bible a lot. So be prepared to uh, save your spot here, but also to move around a little bit. And uh, we did bring chapter 11 to a close last week. Uh, I think we did three sermons there. There's a lot to review, so I'm not going to cover it all. But we do find in chapter 11... Uh, we have the, have the last miracle of Christ. There are seven miracles recorded by John. If you don't, of course, count the resurrection, there are seven miracles that concludes that. And that's what believe John uh, believed was sufficient enough for us to understand that he's written those things that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him we might have everlasting life. So it is also the fifth I Am statement there in John chapter 11, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection resurrection and the life. And not only does he say it, but he proves it by bringing Lazarus back to life. And uh, we see at the end of John chapter 11, it concludes just like John chapter 10 did, where Jesus has to leave because the Jews are wanting to kill him. So that kind of, we'll stop there and go ahead and move into John chapter 12 today. And we do have quite a bit of scripture to cover today. Sometimes it's a few verses. Today I'm going to try to pick up two big ch chunks here of John chapter 12. So if you would follow along with me there in your Bibles, uh, John chapter 12, I'll read verses 1 through 19. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and, wrapped and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always will have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, bless Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this, this, this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for allowing us to gather together 
to study your word, to glean on your word, Lord, and to let your word rule our life. We submit ourselves to you and to your authority and to the authority of your word. Lord, as we read your word and study your word, may it indeed correct us, rebuke us if necessary. May it edify us. May we leave here encouraged today, Lord. And may our doctrine always line up with what is in your word. And may our lives line up with what is in your word. May we continue to pursue clarity of your word and righteousness and personal holiness as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, from the resurrection of Lazarus, there's only about a month until Jesus is put to death. And from this chapter here, uh, chapter 11 and 12 now, chapter 12, we, only have, we have less than a week until he is put to death. And unlike the other Gospels, if you've read them, uh, John spends almost half of his words in committing to the last week of Jesus' life. So uh, all that we've gone through so far... Halfway through John, now begins almost the middle of the book of John. It's all going to be about one week, where other Gospels cover that in a couple of chapters. It's almost three chapters, right? So it's going to be drawn out. But from now on, from last week and going forward, you see every chapter is painted with death to some degree. It's, it's coming. It's getting closer, right? We have Lazarus who died last week, but also we have, have him rising from the dead. And so you're going to constantly see a mix in this end with glory and humiliation as well. And you're, they're going to be, there's going to be a mix going into this. So let's look at verses 1 through 2. Uh, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So, of course, chapter 11 ends with Lazarus' resurrection. Uh, they're from Bethany. Here, Jesus has gone away at the end of chapter 11. Now he is coming back. And why is he coming back? Because it is the time of the Passover. And as we've covered, these feasts are very prominent in the Gospel of John. And the Passover is very prominent, of course. All right. So the Passover was extremely important. One of the three required feasts of the Old Testament. Everybody, uh, they, every family had to send a male representative back to Jerusalem, back to the temple. It was mandatory by the law of God. And the Passover was representing, it was a great feast of God uh, 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 redeeming Israel out of Egypt. And they were supposed to take this feast every single year. And let's review that if you don't mind. Hold your place there. Turn over to Exodus chapter 13. The Passover feast is also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread as well. It has to do with the quickness that they, they ate the bread. There was no time for it to even rise as they were about to escape the next day. The Unleavened Bread, so it became the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And God gave exact orders to prepare for this. So oftentimes the New Testament is just called the Passover or the Passover feast. Old Testament would be called the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. We've take, taken note of that, that several of these feasts kind of have changed names over time. Uh, the day of Pentecost is, is now, was the, the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament. Now they call it the, uh, Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. All right? But either way, these feasts are extremely important. I want you to look here just how important this was and kind of what they were supposed to do. And, and it's too much to cover in this time that I've allotted, but we're just kind of giving it in a nutshell. But look at verses 3 through 10. Uh, this is 
about the Passover, the event that's about to happen. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No unleavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which He swore to your fathers to give you a land of flowing milk, of milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. The unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No unleavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. What we gather from that is that God assigned the feast and all, this feast and the other feast on an exact day they had to be taken. All of Israel knew this. All of them knew to come back to the temple on this during this week for this great feast. All right, and they were to celebrate that even though God had caused death to come through Egypt, right, killing the firstborn of every home, if they obeyed God and put the blood of the lamb on the outside of the door, God's wrath would not go into that home. There was a sacrifice. Again, all this is pointing towards Jesus Christ. A substitutionary atonement had happened. A substitutionary sacrifice. Blood. Death on the outside meant the one inside lives. And so from this we see that God did not go into each home or the wrath did not go in at all. They were protected from that. All right. So this is all, this is a huge feast. Everyone is coming to Jerusalem. There are caravans of migrants coming in every direction to get back to the temple. And Jesus is now a part of this coming back to the Passover feast back to Jerusalem to not only partake of it, but as we're going to find out, he will be it. He will be the Passover lamb. First uh, Corinthians five, seven, Paul says this Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So all that was pointing to, it was a type, it was a shadow in the Old Testament that points forward to what the Christ is going to accomplish, that God has sent the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist announced, to take away the sins of the world. So we do no longer take Passover feast. You are not required now to get a plane ticket and go to Israel three times a year. Uh, there's no need to. There is no holy ground now. All right? There's no place to go back to. We are the church, and we celebrate not that feast, but what that feast pointed towards is Jesus Christ, like we did today. We looked, we took the Lord's Supper. You don't want to say that the Lord's Supper replaces necessarily the Passover. What ultimately replaces Passover is Jesus Christ, right? He is the sacrificial lamb, but the Lord's Supper reminds us of that sacrifice that has happened. All right, the Passover will be ultimately fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Let's go back to John. Look at chapter 12, verse 3. John chapter 12, verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus 
and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. All right, and, and from this we can we can gather that obviously this is extremely expensive ointment. And uh, on down here we find out it was worth 300 denarii. A denarii is what someone could make in one single day. Uh, so there was 300 denarii. So that would mean it's this basically a year's wages if you take out um, the days that they would not work. So almost a year's wages is going to be used for this. So extremely expensive. And there's no, there, we only have the information that is presented. Some people like to assume that this is so valuable. Maybe it was part of her inheritance that she inherited because this is such a, a such value in this, depending on your translation, it may be called nard, it may be called spike nard, it may be called perfume, some translations would even name it myrrh, uh, a common way to think of this now, especially knowing you guys, you think of essential oils, all right, it was, oh yeah, I know what that is, <laughs> so this would be the absolute purest, it's from a plant, uh, it's called spike nard because the plant that comes from in the Himalayan mountains from India, and for it to come all the way to Jerusalem, by the time it gets there, all this process is involved, is extremely expensive. That's why this jar of it is worth one year's wages. So you think if, if you try to compare that to something today, even if you get the finest cologne, the finest perfume, the most concentrated essential oil, uh, odds are, ladies, you're not paying, you know, whatever, $70,000 for that or whatever it is, right? So it's extremely expensive extremely potent and guests could be blessed uh, by this if a homeowner put a dab of it on, on them like just a dab and you guys know really potent perfumes uh, concentrated just a dab behind the ear is all you need and you're good and so that could be a blessing and so this could last for a lifetime it could just last and last and last you could do one dab on you one dab on your guest great blessing uh, but here we find she does something far different why does she pour the entire jar onto Jesus and not just a dab. Uh, we don't have any record of this being done uh, as a common thing. It's not something that they just did on a regular basis. Uh, we, we do get more understanding as we keep going. So Jesus tells us here in verse 7 of John chapter 12, Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And the, the wording here is a little difficult uh, because it's like she's saying he's talking to Judas, he's rebuking Judas that it should be saved and given to the poor, sold and given to the poor. He says save it for the day of my burial, but obviously she doesn't save it for the day of her, his burial. So the translators most commonly say that he means to save it for the purpose of my burial. And we do find that, especially in Matthew 26 verse 12, uh, for more clarification on that verse and what was said. In pouring this ointment on my body... She has done it to prepare me for burial. So she is doing this for Jesus because, again, she sees that death is coming. So apparently Jesus has come to die. We know that to be true. But Mary knows it. It appears that Mary was in tune with Jesus' steady teaching that he had come to earth to die. And the writing is really on the wall uh, that he is going to die. He has been teaching that he's going to die. Uh, even before they, he came back to heal Lazarus or to raise Lazarus from the dead, you remember Thomas's words back in John chapter 11, verse 16. Look back there, flip a page, whatever you have to do. John 11:16. 16. 
when uh, the messenger came back to Jesus and the disciples and said, you know, Mary, Mary and Mar uh, Martha have sent us, Lazarus is sick, and he says he, he is sick, but he's not, it's not an illness that's going to lead to permanent death. Uh, in that, uh, Jesus says, let's go back. And Thomas randomly says this. It seems random to us. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And what does Thomas mean? He means that he knows going back to Jerusalem, there are scouts on the lookout. We recall one of the previous uh, uh, feasts where they had scouts everywhere looking for Jesus, but he was able to sneak in and get to the temple there, right? So they, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the, the Sanhedrin, the high priest there, the chief priests are all working in cahoots trying to suppress Jesus, but then they're eventually trying to kill Jesus. And so chapter 10 ends with him having to leave Jerusalem so they will not kill him. Chapter 11 ends the same way. And Thomas here is saying, let us go back. If you're going back, Jesus, we'll go with you. But we know that we're going to die with you as well because they're, going to, they're coming to kill us. That's what they're going to do. So Thomas seems to know this. Disciples seem to know this. Many places we could look at. I'll have you look at some in your discipleship time today. But look at Mark. Hold your place in John 12. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus had commonly spoken of his imminent death and also his resurrection. But he, he continues to, to mention this multiple times. And Mary seems to be a little more in tune with this than, than some of the disciples, or maybe all the disciples. Uh, look at Mark 8.31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. So very clear teaching as they're on their way to Jerusalem there, letting the disciples know this and those that might have been right around them, that this is going to happen. Look at Mark 10. Turn a page or two. Mark 10, uh, verse 32, and we'll start in the second portion of it. So 32b through 33. And almost verbatim, Jesus says the same thing. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying... See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. So here we see it again. So it's highly possible that Mary was, she was very close, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We see it. There's a, they're very, she is very close to that family. She was in tune with this. She knew this was going to happen. He was coming back to Jerusalem. She knew they were looking for him, knew he was about to die to some degree. Uh, there seems to be something going on there. Uh, and it, it, would, it should not be overlooked, though, as you think of what she's done, that she used her hair to rub the ointment into his feet. And this, again, is very unusual. Feet washing was common. Everyone had dirty feet. They wore sandals. They walked through sandy dust all day. So when you come into someone's home, uh, commonly now some people take, take shoes off when they go into home to keep dirt from getting in the home. Okay, But then it would be wash the person's feet. And if you're having someone come over to your house, so the lowest person on the, on the totem pole, you might say, the lowest person, uh, the child or the servant or the slave, would wash the person's feet and keep them clean 
clean as they come into the home, especially to eat. Here, she takes on that position willingly, but instead of using a, a wash tub of water and, and a towel like Jesus does with his disciples, she uses this pure nard worth one year's wages and washes his feet, and not with a towel, but with her hair. And why is that, right? Why does she not just use a towel? Why does she use uh, her hair for this? And and we there are, again, it's it's not stated exactly why, but we, we kind of can piece together most likely why. First uh, Corinthians eleven fifteen seems to point to this. Um, if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Alright, now that we can go different ways with that passage. Right now we're focusing on this portion of it though. If a woman has long hair, it is to her glory. So this could be a hint, alright, that Mary was using the very best of her to wash the feet of Jesus. She is giving her what is considered to her glory, her beautiful hair, is she is submitting, giving her all to Jesus. She has given her all, this, this inheritance, whatever, however she's acquired this year's uh, worth of wages of this perfume to Jesus. She is giving personally of her hair to wash Jesus' feet. And from this it appears to be, she is, is, is putting her, she is seeing Jesus for who he is. And she is exalting Jesus and she is getting lower and lower as, as she exalts Jesus higher and higher. The very best of me, Jesus, is not worth even cleaning your feet with is basically what, what she is saying here. It's like, this is the best of me. I will clean your feet with this. So it's really interesting for her to, this is, this is who we all are, right? <laughs> when we come to Christ, we don't, we don't have, Christ does not look at us for how good and great we are and how much honor we have. Many people wrongly think that they, they come to God with such pride and arrogance and, God, you need me. And uh, that's not the case, right? We have nothing. We have absolutely nothing to bring to Christ. And here she reveals, it's like a visual aid. I have nothing. I am the lowest of the servants. And I'm here to anoint you, to bless you. The best of me, my hair will be used to wash your feet. And, and there, you could definitely apply this, I think, to your life in various areas uh, as far as what you give to Christ. Do you give Him your second best? You know, do you give Him a little time at the end of the day if you have any time left? Or how do, you know, you can, you can apply this in your life, your energy, your effort, your, your, your money, your, your time. What are you doing for Christ as a believer and actually seeing yourself as Mary does? So here we have a, a beautiful example of true servitude laid out. I think this goes right in line with Jesus' teaching, Matthew 23, 11 through 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And she is a visual display for such a thing. And as we'll see, she seems to be displaying this faster than the disciples acquire such a thing. Because here soon we're going to be covering when Jesus, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. They came to a home where no one washed their feet, and the disciples did not want to be a servant. They did not want to take on that low position. They kept waiting for someone else to do it, and then Jesus washes their feet. All right, so here we see her really being a great example of humility, and servitude. Uh, let's go on down to John chapter 12. Look at verse 4 through 7. We'll get into uh, Judas here a little bit. 
The story of Judas is building as well. This will be the, the second time that John mentions him and, him and then gives us a commentary about him. Uh, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So it, it seems like here John is juxtaposing two opposites, right? Showing, because so, you have differing, many times as we're going through John, you have acquaintances and people around Jesus and people supposedly believing in Jesus, but then John reveals their heart later on that they're not truly believing in Jesus. And here you have two people that really shine during this passage. One is Mary. I'm, she's willing to give her very best, her hair, to the glory of Jesus Christ. To her, everything she has, this alabaster jar broken, the perfume poured out on Jesus, using his, her hair to wash his feet. She is giving everything she has on earth to him. And then you have the opposite heart revealed that shines darkly, and that's Judas, who sees such a thing and is salivating because he knows he could sell that and he could make money off of it. So you have Jesus being, being used by Judas trying to get the money so that he can make money for earthly gain, and then her giving all that she has on earth to Jesus. Two different hearts that are being exposed here. And this is the second time that John has added commentary after the word Judas, after mentioning him. John 60, or sorry, John 6, verse 70 through 71. Uh, I'll mention it quickly, but if you want to turn there, you can. Uh, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So we'll get more information about Judas coming up, but he is kind of setting that up, building that up along the way as we get to it. Uh, look at verse 9, John chapter 12, 9 through 11. Here we have just a brief, brief little, little section here. Lord Lazarus comes back into the story. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only to a, on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So as you recall, the last couple of weeks we were going, looking at Bethany. Is only I think it's, it's 1.8 miles. It's almost two miles away from Jerusalem. Um, after as Lazarus died, there were many Jews who had come out to to pay homage to him and to say their last respects, etc. And Jesus comes in, raises him from the dead. Many of them believe, John says. It seems like that could be true belief because he doesn't disparage that belief later. But then many go and tell the Pharisees, like little tattletales. Jesus is here and he just raised someone from the dead. So Jesus has to go before they, they kill him. All right? Here... 
He's back in Bethany. The Jews hear about Jesus being there, and they didn't get to correspond. They didn't get to interact with Him because He left right after he, he raised Lazarus from the dead. So many of them are coming out to see Jesus. And it, again, this is not just those same people, but now Jerusalem is, is just bursting at the seams because of all the pilgrimage, all the migrants from all over. Uh, if you were an Israelite and you were head of the household there, you had to come back. You had to, many brought their families back. So Jerusalem like quadruples in population, if not even more. So now the word is spreading. Now they want to go see this one who has raised someone from the dead, and the one that he raised from the dead is there with him, so they're going out to see him. All right. Uh, do the chief priests desire to see Jesus and Lazarus as well? Now, if they truly were representing God, you think that they would. But we, of course, know that they were not. They're representing Satan. They could care less if Jesus actually raised him from the dead. They don't want to see him. They want to kill him. And they also want to kill who else? The one he raised from the dead. And, and, and in this, you don't see anything of, of, of them going out to determine if Lazarus is really alive. They know he's alive. They don't try to disprove this like they did with the blind, the blind man where he, he, he didn't see, then he could see. And then they try to talk him out of being born blind or talk him out of that Jesus, Jesus caused him to see. So they have the parents come in. They have the neighbors come in. Is this truly your son? Was he born blind? Yes, right? How is he seeing? And his parents, they ask him because if you believe that Jesus was the Christ, you were excommunicated out of the Jewish religion. So they said they try to disprove it. They couldn't disprove it. And here they've just given up. They don't try to disprove that Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead or raised him from the dead. They just want to kill him. And uh, their heart is very much being revealed here. Uh, look at verse 12, chapter 12. 12 and 13. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And and uh, this is what we often refer to as Palm Sunday. And we, we, we picture that, the palm branches going down, Jesus coming through, riding on the colt of a donkey. Uh, the laying of the palm branches is interesting. We really don't have much, or if anything, about that in the Bible itself. There's a historical book uh, that records the history of the Jews, uh, First and Second Maccabees. And there we find that there's two different times it happens. And we, were, we covered a little bit of this as we covered the, the feast of, uh, that the, there was a feast which now is known as just Hanukkah, but it goes back to the same historical period here, uh, the Feast of Lights, the Celebration of Lights. It's not one of God's prescribed feasts, but these guys play into that, the Maccabees, all right? So uh, Simon Maccabees, after he had uh, uh, Antioch, Antiochus Epiphanes had come in, taken over the temple, sacrificed pigs in it. We recall that. Uh, Simon Maccabees is one of those that, that got him out of there finally, took back Jerusalem. And when Simon Maccabees comes back into Jerusalem, they, they lay the palm branches down. And that's, that's really, a, as far as I could find, the first time that has happened. They lay the palm branches down for him to march on. It's kind of like uh, the red carpet. 
is what we would say today. Our kind of like, but it's not, it's not just for honor, but it represented victory. It represented deliverance. Uh, this also happens years later when his brother does something very similar. So two different times in that book. So now Jesus is entering into town and they are laying the palm branches all down on the ground. Now they didn't have to go special order the palm branches as maybe some of your churches did growing up. They were just all on the streets. There's date palms everywhere. They're grabbing them. They're putting them down. All right. So why are they doing this for Jesus? They're certainly expressing something. And, and it, it's important to kind of see when it's been done in the past and then to kind of see why it's been done now. That they are expecting Jesus to be their deliverer, which they're right. But, but again, their idea of Messiah is a lot different. They're not combining everything together. They are desiring a deliverer to come in and deliver them from Rome. That's their main objective. But his delivery is going to be much greater than that. It's going to be from the bondage of sin. It's going to be from the wrath of God. Uh, it's going to be from the bondage of Satan, right? So that's much greater. But they are crying out some good things. Um, they say lots, lots of good things. Uh, but also, also, before I get there, look at John six fifteen. John six fifteen. I probably have it on the screen today. But even though they are honoring him as and saying Messiah, and uh, honoring him as a, a deliverer and possibly a king as well, we'll find out. We also look back at John six fifteen, and we see where after Jesus fed the multitude. They were crying out wonderful things about him as well. They called him the prophet, which goes all the way back to Moses. When Moses said, the prophet is coming. Uh, if you don't listen to him, you will die. So they were calling him this. Wow, great. Others, after they were fed, wanted him to be king. So perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And in John chapter 6, we looked at that where around 20,000 people follow him out there because of the signs he feeds them. Uh, they want to make him king. He says no. He goes away, goes across the sea. Many come there again. He teaches them that I am the bread of life. You must eat of me. You must drink of me. I am the manna from heaven. And they all go away except for the disciples. Why is that? Because they had a different idea of what it meant to be king and Messiah. And Jesus is the king of kings. But at this point, he is coming as a humble servant. All right. So, so they are right that he is king. They are right that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of David. Uh, but they're still not defining it fully. Uh, look at verse 14. Let's continue down. And this, this, sorry, before, before, before you look down, this is going to be revealed quickly. Just as the 20,000 came to see him, and then they all left. Uh, this is also, you have people coming from Jerusalem, people coming, the pilgrimage coming in from Bethany. They're all meeting up, thousands of people probably around Jesus doing such a thing. But in literal days, their heart is going to be revealed. What's going to happen? Well, Jesus is going to go from a hero to a zero, you might say. They're going to, to honor him, and then days later, they're crying out to kill him. Crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, don't give us him. Like, all within a matter of days. So that's how we know a lot of these people who are crying out these things, 
They're not meaning what's coming out of their mouth. Oftentimes, false belief can come out. The words can seem true, but the heart, there's something different there. Look at verse 14. 14 and 15, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a colt. Alright, fascinating here. And Jesus is the king, but he is not the king that they expect. Uh, but he is coming in, and he's riding on a colt. A donkey. Now, why is Jesus riding on a donkey? And uh, number one, it is prophetic that he would do such a thing. And this is a prophecy, as John quotes from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this is really amazing. If you were a victorious king, uh, you just like you would imagine on on, on TV, it'd be a, they'd be they'd be riding in on a steed, a stallion, right, a, a muscular, mighty horse that displays the power of the king, the majesty of the king, etc. This is the opposite. This is a donkey, but even here. Often our donkeys are much bigger than over in Israel. These donkeys were so small uh, that the people, the men's feet would almost hang to the ground. So it's a very, it's a donkey, but it's a very small donkey. <laughs> All right. And he's coming in extreme. There, there's no other creature he could, he, that would bear the weight of a person that he could ride that would be more humble than coming in on this donkey. So number one, this is prophetic that he is coming in. Fulfilling this uh, prophecy by Zechariah. And uh, also we, we find out, uh, number two, that this definitely displays humility. Instead of riding on a majestic horse, he comes riding on a donkey. And Jesus' life on earth is mixed with such a thing, especially as we go into these the last week here. But you picture... Uh, the shepherds, the heavens open up and the angels declare the glory of God and announce Jesus' birth. And it's like glorious, right? And the, the, the king has been born. The savior has bo been born unto you. A savior has been born. And where is he? But he, the heaven has opened up. They see the angels singing. This is wonderful. This is great. Where is he going to be? Is he in a mansion? Is he in a castle somewhere? Is he in a, is it, he's in a, he's lying in a manger? Right, and so you see this 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 honor, this royalty, and then humility, and also you're seeing that here. You have the King of Kings who's coming in, but he's riding on a donkey at this time. So it is humility. Now, uh, Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem is quite different from how John is going to see Jesus later in this vision in the Book of Revelation. If you think about Revelation 19:11. He says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So interesting. You have again this mix of, of humility, and then you have this kingship, this power, this majesty as judge. And it's kind of fascinating, the type of equine our, uh, our horse type animal that Jesus is depicted as riding on reflects the work that he is doing at the time. 
His time on earth was his time of humility. Right? He, he's, the, he's come as the lamb, but later he comes as the lion. He's come riding on, a, on the colt of a, of a donkey, humility to his death, but later he's coming as judge of, over all the earth. He's coming on the white horse. So what were the people saying as he came in and rode the donkey on top of the, top of the palms? Uh, several things that they're saying. One of them, he, they're crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna is a, is a Hebrew transliteration that literally means to save now we pray. Save now we pray. These, this is all quoted from Psalm 118, verse 25 through 26. I didn't have all that up there. If you'd like to turn over there to it, uh, hold your place in John chapter 12. So they're crying out Hosanna. It's being repeated over and over. It is a line of one of the Psalms that was greatly sang during the Passover week. And I believe it's Psalm 114 through Psalm 118. I might go back to 13. Uh, but th those Psalms are sung and recited often during the Passover week. They are the Passover Psalms. <clears throat> so these Psalms were on their mind, they were on their heart, and they're starting to apparently see some kind of fulfillment of this. So Psalm 118, verse 25, is the, the Hosanna statement. Verse 25, he says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is what they are quoting, and they're saying, as he is coming through. Now, <clears throat> you also see, if you turn to Matthew 21, turn over there with me, Matthew 21. Matthew records that they're saying other things as well. John records that, that they're connecting the Psalm 118, that, that Exodus Passover Psalms that were quoted a lot during the Passover to Jesus. And, and truly He is. He is truly uh, the one who is going to save. Truly He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew 21, 9-11 gives us some more clues here to what they were saying. And the crowds <coughs> that went before Him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. So here is not just Hosanna, which means save now we pray. There's definitely a savior element there. Again, most likely some of them were true believers. Some of them could have been saying this and meaning it from the heart. Others were thinking, save us now we pray from our enemies, from Rome, etc. Right? But now they connect son of David. No, that's a big deal. This is a messianic title where we have uh, Jesus, or sorry, the, the, the Messiah is promised to come from the line of David, who is often referred to as the son of David. So now they're connecting these things. It's another way of saying Messiah. Then they continue on. Matthew says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So it's a, just great things are saying. Verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. So here Matthew records us saying that they're talking about him being a prophet. Hosanna in the highest. Some type of savior, deliverer, figure, and the son of David. Now what they said was true. 
but did they mean what they said? And that's what's fascinating, because you see that, yes, this is true. He is the King of Kings. He is the son, the, the son of David. He is the Hosanna in the highest. He is the only one that can deliver. He is the only one that can save. But it doesn't appear at this time this, that their words are expressing their heart. Their words are expressing what they want their Savior to be. Same thing happens today, right? People define Jesus how they want Him to be instead of letting God's Word define who He truly is. So similarly, this, these happen, things happen today. Uh, if you talk to people much, family, friends, or, or strangers, whoever it is, and ask them if they know Jesus, uh, you know, it would be hard for someone living around here to say no. Most likely they say yes, but you shouldn't stop there. You should say, oh, tell me more about that Jesus, right? And that's when you find out, wait a minute, this isn't the Jesus of the Bible. You made up your own version. And that's, that's kind of what's going on here. Uh, look at verse 17. Let's see. Or uh, 16, sorry. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about Him and had been done to Him. Now, we're not going to go into great detail with that today, but as the story of Jesus unfolds before their eyes, uh, they do not connect all the dots of prophecy. Later they do, with the help of the Holy Spirit and with Jesus Himself, right? Jesus has to, He shows up on the road to Emmaus, and they're all crying and distraught. And what does He say? He's like, let me go back, remind you of everything, and teach you from, all from, the, from the law, from the prophets. And they're like, oh, wow, now we see. Then He does the same thing to the disciples in the closed room later on as well. So He has to... He brings this before them. He teaches them, we find out, even from the time of His resurrection to the time of His ascension. Uh, they're in a great seminary class, right? Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is teaching them. So later they're connecting all these dots, all right? But not at this time. They're kind of going through it. Uh, look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with Him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So here you have, just to kind of paint the picture, you have all these people coming in with Jesus. Many are going out to Jesus. And there's really a big meeting of the crowds. And they're all joining in this revelry and this, this, this honoring of him. And at, at this point, it's, it's very interesting. You have so many people there coming out. They're hearing of this because they saw the sign. But also, uh, Exodus 12, verse 1 through 6. Hold your place there. Exodus 12, verse 1 through 6. That Jesus is presenting Himself not only at the time of the Passover, but most specifically, He is presenting Himself on Lamb Selection Day. It's really, really interesting. Because each, each home had to pick their lamb out. And it had to be a spotless lamb. It had to be a blemishless lamb. And then they had to, to protect that lamb to make sure it had no blemish on it for the sacrifice. And this was all in honor of the Passover, remember, where the blood was put up. Sorry about that. The blood was put up on the door, right? And so here they have, this is lamb selection day. The families, the households are gathering in their lambs. And Jesus is presenting Himself as the Lamb of God to Jerusalem on that day. Look at Exodus 12, verse 1 through 6. We'll get through this quickly. Uh, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, 
This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. To all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Long story short, this is again pointing to Jesus Christ. Not only is He coming in fulfilling the prophecy, He is also coming in fulfilling the feast. He is also coming in fulfilling the Lamb Selection Day. He is not their choice. He is God's choice. He is God's Lamb who has come to take away the sins. John chapter 12, verse 19, last verse today. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has come after him. What do they mean? Well, we've been following along. We know what they mean. They've been trying to get him killed. They've been trying to arrest him early on. They've been trying to, to murder him. They haven't been able to. And so the Pharisees are extremely frustrated. You've gained nothing. We've gained nothing by all of our trying and all of our attempts to put out scouts to keep him out, to to try to arrest him, to try to kill him. What are we doing? Now all the world has come after him, and these crowds are out there crying out. And this is bold because in John chapter 9 we find out if anyone stated that Jesus was the Christ, they had determined to excommunicate them. So they had, they had stood a chance to lose everything by being out there saying, look, the Son of David, the Christ, the Messiah, the King, Hosanna on the highest. And the Pharisees know this now. They're losing ground. So to end this portion... What do we gain from the opening of chapter 12? Lots of history, of course, uh, but we are to see the heart of Mary as wonderful, as beautiful, and to emulate that. She gave her absolute best to Christ. She took on the servant role. She was not about her personal gain and glory. Contradict that to Judas, and you have the opposite. Uh, we are to see the cries of the people as Jesus entered into Jerusalem and see them as right. They were correct in saying all of these things. That is who He truly is. He is the Son of David. He is the prophet from God. He is also the Passover over lamb who takes away our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus the Christ, who is God and man, who lived the perfect sinless life that we could not live, who died upon the cross to take our sins away, to pay the price so that your wrath would pass over us. It would skip over us and be applied to him. This is a, a something that we cannot even imagine how great and glorious this good news truly is. The gospel that you have paid the price for our sins to all who believe in Jesus Christ. God, we pray if there's anyone today or listening today that has not believed in Jesus Christ for their salvation, for their forgiveness of sins. God, we pray that you would draw them to yourself even today. May they see the beauty of Christ. May they see themselves as Mary did, as unworthy. And may they exalt Christ today and see Him as the true Savior, the Son of David, the Messiah, the one and only one who can deliver them from their sins. And God, help us today as believers.
to see the glory in this, that indeed Jesus is everything that they were saying and even more. He is the risen King. He is the Savior. He is the Hosanna, the save now, the only one who can save. And He is our Savior. He is our Deliverer. He is our King. He is the Son of David who has come to live and die for us. We thank You for that.